Hi everyone, I am Rohit here, founder and CEO of Leo One. Businesses are not built by perfectly executing a business plan, but rather by being agile and listening to the market and being willing to switch gears when needed. And the story of Leo One is the perfect example of this principle. Rohit Gajbiye was an IIT graduate who spent a few years working at a bank in Singapore. He decided to come back to India to try his hand at entrepreneurship, and he started Finance Peer, which was a peer-to-peer lending startup. But showing remarkable agility. He soon pivoted the company to becoming a lending player, helping fund school fees for parents. And Finance Peer was renamed to Leo One. In this candid conversation with Akshay Dat, Rohit shares his journey of discovering PMF for Leo One and the journey of building multiple moats for what is a very profitable and sticky business. Stay tuned for the conversation and don't forget to subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming app to hear journey of founders who have built for scale. we are an embedded finance stack for education ecosystem so we have comprehensive financial solutions to solve for their core problems which is essentially fee collection problems and liquidity problem for the parent to pay fees so basically we have multiple products embedded into one stack right we have not just lending which we started with but we have payment solutions we have card solution we convert id card into id plus prepaid cards so converting a campus to a cashless campus and along with erp we offer this as a holistic solution to the institution so that it's not just solving their loan problems for parents is it is holistically solving their fee collection and liquidity problems for parents okay okay interesting and this is for what level like schools colleges like what is the market that you catering to so yeah we have we had started from schools and colleges with the card segment of course colleges where we have started with but this fits for k12 and colleges both right less for preschools or for alternate segment but more for k12 and colleges okay okay got it and what like you know some numbers that you can share like what is your arr or how many users and how do you measure users do you measure users as the students as the number of institutions like like just some metrics that you can share around the business Yeah. So, see, basically, how we have grown from the past three years, right? In our first year, we were working with around twenty-four schools. That time, it was K twelve segment, and we did roughly around somewhere around five crores of disbursements in the first year. Because it was a lending product, so this five crores is what you financed parents to help them pay the fees. Yes, that year was completely into lending. So, in the year two, from that, we went to nearly around four fifty institutions, just about touching five hundred. increase our disbursement so financing to around 10 million dollars in year 2 and then in year 3 from there we went to around 2600 plus institutions and we have done a 100 million dollars of disbursement right that was our last year and this year again we have paired up with around 11000 plus institutions in india touching more than 5000 plus pin codes already and we are expecting that it may not be direct multiple but at least 250 300 mil that we may touch in terms of lending volumes right so th- because this has been our genesis we started offering the zero cost emi product back in 2019 but apart from that in the past 18 months or so you will see in the fee segment we have processed more than 100 million dollars of fees and that's not lending 
but parents have started using our platform and paying fees also and it's in the same institution so there are not two institution some people pay fees via the platform some people take the loan options right that's the second offering if you look at the erp our software is deployed in more than 360 colleges across the country again there is roughly around 2.7 so roughly 300000 plus students teachers and parents all using our platform these are active users right so these are still there on the software portion so that's something that has been done before our card product is recently launched less than 2 months since starting the product we have around 2 and a half lakh students who have subscribed to the cards right so that's in progress for this year okay got it amazing so uh, let's talk about the journey of getting here so you know uh, i believe you were working with like development bank of singapore what is that like a world bank kind of an organization what is that like so it's a private bank it's private come public bank back in singapore so it has taken over posb so it's like the sbi for singapore right so and w- what was your role there so i started as a graduate associate i was selected straight from the campus right and initially we were to work on multiple projects so we started with if you have heard about pela which is used back then in singapore we worked on that project we worked on developing a credit line and account opening for exchange students from there and the completing that first year then we went into the credit and liquidity risk segment this was the area where i had an expertise in which were more into the frdm space so it's finance risk data mart so we were developing the finance risk data mart for the bank taking help of moody's risk engine and that's where my area of expertise lied right so i used to compute all those ratios and understand the health financial health in terms of the lending lines in terms of other treasury inputs that we have done so all of this regulatory reporting was managed by my department so i had that expertise first in dbs of course then post dbs i had gotten into a healthcare venture as well very small still like 9 months we started a company called forget to remember in india that's what that was in india but i was still working in dbs at that time so i had not left my job and dbs was in singapore dbs was in singapore healthcare actually was started from singapore working with the other fellow co-founders in india and we had developed a concept of medical adherence for organ transplant patients the concept went well prototype came in place initial funding came in place but our team collapsed by the time we all decided to leave our jobs and take it to the next level so that was my first failure and obviously healthcare wasn't my space so the ceo of that company was someone else back in india and what is this medical adherence what does that mean like there a, a transplant patient needs to follow certain diet and exercise regimen and then you build an app which sends him notifications and nudges was that what i mean i'm just guessing exactly yeah yeah you exactly captured you create nudges for the family members along with the patient right and the doctor so that the doctor and family members you essentially tell them if something is not happening right because here what happens even if you miss a single medicine on time basically the problems could get severe and you even on cost structures it could mean a lot for the family right so adherence means a lot in terms of the organ kidney liver transplant kind of major issues so that wasn't my area of expertise healthcare space of course i was looking at the finance and tech piece for that entity it doesn't sound like a large tam for a product like this i mean how many people would be doing organ transplant like no there is essentially the idea is if you look at tam in terms of number of people or if you look at tam in terms of the cost structures involved right so these are two different ways of looking at it 
So if you actually look at organ transplant in terms of the cost structures involved, it's very heavy. And if developed nations, it's much, much larger as well. Right? So even you don't really need to capture volumes of customers, but it matters in terms of the number of lives that you impact, right? So it was, it was but of course, the product that we have today, the TAM wasn't as big as what it is today. Right? But of course, the ticket size also is way different from what it was in that segment versus this. So you left that company and it carried on or the business shut down? Yeah, we actually sold it to the investor itself. He's just using the app and not running any other segments of the businesses. And as soon as I started, I know there are going to be challenges. We have to tackle it. I had a different learning in terms of team selection, right? And especially in terms when it comes to co-founders as well. You have to be very careful what you have to define up front, right? First stint, a lot of learnings from it. And post that, I was working on the ideation, which became my second venture. What went wrong? What was your learning from it? Yes. So see how that company was formed. While I was back in DBS, there was a program called Stanford Ignite, Stanford GSB program only. So DBS has sponsored me as an entrepreneurship program into that. And as part of the program, we had multiple projects. One of the project was this project, right? And we then studied through this project. We pitched through this project and we ended up. So those team members were my team members during the course as well. And post the course, we just took it a step forward, right? And the trouble was, of course, we were placed in different countries. You are not at the same location. We did expect a lot from the venture, right? We did get the first round of funds also. But knowing the founder in terms of the risk-taking ability was not done before because that three to six months was what we have spent with each other. That was the only time, right? And I, it was a shocking thing for me also that the other people who are so passionate about this suddenly start feeling a bit cautious in terms of the risk that they're taking. Right? So that last mile that you have to cross, the other fellow founders could not. So that's when that was, but I accepted it. I'm still friends with them. No, it's a tough decision for everyone. So different learning for us. Okay. So so then what led to Finance Peer? It was, you started by with the name of Finance Peer at that time. So tell me about that. The name Finance Peer, because the first thing that we started with back in 2018 was peer-to-peer lending, right? We were rather one of the first three ones to receive a P2P lending license as well. So we started a concept back then and it became very popular because there was a lot of reasons as to why I started P2P lending first. See, I was doing lending in a developed nation. So I knew how things are run and what digital lending means back there. And India, even if we had to say you're a digital bank and digital lending, all of them, we know the level of digitization that we can bring about in this process, right? So you know, it was very funny when I came back in India multiple times and I want to take a loan for my course. Probably my bank balance was larger than the loan, but it was in the NRI account or it was in my Singapore account. And the banking processes here would not lend me an amount where my savings is larger. I So that was very funny, right? You have an NRI account sitting, but you just have such a rigid policy. So obviously borrowing was difficult. And from that day, I understood borrowing is not just difficult for people like us, but a lot of doctors, a lot of police officials. And there are N number of people I can say self-employed, a lot of those customers, new credit customers, a single mother, these are various cases where borrowing is very difficult, right? And if it is large amount of borrowing, because if you look at companies defaulting, it's large. In terms of personal loans, the default is not really affecting lenders that big, but it was very difficult. So that's something that I realized. And second thing is, of course, the interest that the person is making on an FD, right? They have an intent to contribute to the society, 
but it doesn't always have to be in the nature of donation right you can help each other and still make some interest out of it so i just thought at back at that time this wasn't a regulated space so and when we started there was no regulations here p2p lending 2017 when we brainstormed and got all the things together how did you find next set of co-founders for this peer to peer lending yeah the next set of co-founders for me were from my own space so they were my friends either in my college right so for example the trust was already there the trust was there the kind of work that we complement each other was already there because we did that before so one of my founders was my batchmate in iit so i knew him pretty well and we did a lot of assignments a lot of project work together so i knew how we complement each other another of my co-founder was again in the same stanford ignite program then we were friends throughout after that i knew what kind of developments is capable of what he has done and the fourth one was my brother himself so again i knew his speciality so i just had to get these three guys together on the same page explain and build that relationship before we sign up into a firm so we did that in 2017 we really didn't sign up and establish an immediately so we did that exercise and once we were comfortable with each other and we had complete trust right and the most important aspect of passion that was the beginning of how we started of course p2p lending is what made everyone come together and it wasn't regulated space it was very attractive we developed our prototypes and we evaluated with a lot of customers potential customers back then and we saw a lot of demand on both ends right and slowly it so happened that people started making more interest than in an fd and people on the other side demand side people started borrowing at a lower cost than a bank right they were actually borrowing money at around 9 to 11% and in an fd and probably much faster also much faster it was like a same day kind of a dispersal we had already defined the policy we have fed it into the engine so the things are going very well so did you build this off your savings or you raised funds also for this initial portion we did it out of our savings and how did you prevent risk because when you're taking money from consumers i mean they're not like mature family offices or hnis or institutions who are okay to take risk you know some like an end consumer like a doctor who has excess cash if he's giving that money to the platform he would never imagine that he can lose his money so how, what did he do to to you know prevent Yes, at that time, you know, we used a lot of alternate data. We built a lot. Like we used to use the email text crap at that moment, and it was allowed back then. So that gave us a lot of readings. We were not very rigid. If there is a bureau score which we were hitting, then we were hitting multiple bureaus to understand not just the bureau score but their payment behavior as well. That itself gave us an indication. If not, we went to the income source, which could be a bank statement. We had an analyzer of it that helped us. even if that is not in place and if you give me any other proof of your earning which comes via email sms that also suffices if not you give me official receipts that also suffices right if not you know how a microfinance works right multiple people come together in terms of guaranteeing so we had established all these mechanisms so that you know the chances or approval rates are larger and it really worked we had zero default in our year one like none of our customers did default back then and and was it one to one lending like matching people with cash with people who needed money it wasn't one to one it was always a one to many approach right because the basic concept of de-risking on the lenders front so you are telling them some return returns right so they are making more money on one borrower they are making less money on the other and on an average they will get their return 
but even if one or two borrowers default no they will still not make losses right so you have to diversify capital will be protected right okay yeah capital is protected so that's how we always had diversification for the lenders from day one and what was your take rate margin uh, yeah what was your margin yeah okay so see, for us essentially in p2p it wasn't a very large to be honest we used to return around 9% to lenders and from anywhere from 11 to 15% was our borrowing rate so from 2% to around 6% is what we used to make on a spread again that 11 to 15 bases your credit score right so if you're a very good customer we'll only make 2% out of Okay, got it. Okay, got it. Okay, so yeah, year one went very well, zero losses. How much did you disperse in year one? In P two P, we started small. We overall in the entire year we did roughly around a nine crores only. Right? So that wasn't a big number, but that was the first year, and the knowledge awareness was very low. People did not in India the awareness was very low. Right? The concept did exist in the West when we did our competitive research, but in India it wasn't as popular. but we had enough lenders through wealth partners who came on our platform and we had enough borrowers who directly came or through, came through a lot of dsas and you were giving a margin to the dsa yes there was a, if the dsa comes in then there is a normal margin that they have to also make but you know in that year one itself more than 60% of the portfolio to us to my surprise as well it was from education space right and what i understood back then the assumption that i went to before i went into the data was mostly this could be customers for on the higher education space right so it's either a post grad program or a study abroad program etc but most of them were actually from k12 and ug so people were taking loans of 1 lakh of 2 lakh and they were willing to pay 11 12% kind of an interest on it but they wanted to put their kids into those schools and colleges right from there i started digging going deeper into this because at my time honestly 6 rupees to 10 rupees a month that, that's the kind of fees i paid right? so <laughs> this kind of a 1 lakh and all was like okay man I probably have i'm probably too old to come back now but yeah, the it was a drastic change if you look at it probably 15 years back someone who was paying like a 4 5000 per annum was a rich kid right and 15 years later you come back and someone who is paying 50000 is an affordable kid you know that has the kind of fee bracket that happened and if you look at the income sources they are nearly the same they are gradually increasing your average income of per capita income hasn't grown at that rate right so obviously this problem was about to come but when i first looked at the data i was like oh my god they are willing to pay and the school fees are really large the schools i went to also is taking more fees now so that was a space i interacted a lot with parents i interacted a lot with the schools initially and we understood that this is a very good segment from two perspective right our understanding of the space was good because we honestly all the co-founders were came in from a background where we were luckily able to get scholarships to cross different stages right i didn't really had that amount of money to take anything at leisure or even buy books at that we used to use friends books and all of that so we understand you know a lot of our friends could not make it so how much it matters you know if you don't have that fun kind of a backup so that was one reason we chose this space it related very well with us for us to dig in and become more passionate and secondly if you look at the space right it's a very noble cause you are actually educating every kid and the default is are inherently not built into the model because you are one year into the institution if you are not paying for the loan essentially the institution also gets alarmed that this parent may not pay me the next year or they kind of withhold the mark sheet probably for a week or so 
right? just to exert pressure. And you will see there is no default happening when it comes to your kid. You know, parent doesn't want to have any kind of name shame or any kind of default that happens and any reminders right, with respect to your kid. So, and for our lenders, it was a next game. And back then when I did an education, it was P2P, right? The lenders are very happy. If you look in P2P, you're lending to anyone taking a personal loan, you don't know the end cause. Vis-a-vis someone who's actually, you're just putting your money into a school or a college, not into a personal account. Lenders are very comfortable, right? And we were able to expand a lot on the supply side when this came in. So that's when we first created a pivot. So you created a category on your platform saying uh, education loans or education, something like that. Okay. So we created a pivot, yeah. But the supply was all like people with excess cash. Uh, supply was from individuals, individuals. So like retail, basically. Retail. And these, it's not new to them. It's like for wealth partners who are there in a city, right? They diversify the wealth of their clients. This was one of a new portfolio for them and they were taking it well, especially if it's an education segment, they are very happy because they know if you're making this return in this space, they have a lot of clients who want to create an impact as well. So it was a very good fit for us. Yes, education portfolio became our first pivot and we only and only focused on education, right? So we understood that we don't have to go after DSAs again and again. A third reason why we took that also, you know, with DSAs, you know, every month you have to do your sales. So if you're just sitting out, your business will not happen. Right? You have to generate demand. In this B2B space, which we went into schools, fees are paid every year. So the ones which have partnered in the previous year, this year, even if I don't have to acquire new customers, your business repeats, right? So repeat value is large. Your lifetime value of your customer is very large, right? So six, seven years on an average as an LTV is quite good. That was one point, first pivot. But of course, we did pivot from P2P also. We established a parent entity, which was into technology of the money that we had put back then. All four of us had already exhausted on our money and this became a regulated space. As soon as this became regulated, there was a need for two crores, minimum funds. And then over and above, we had to operate on the compliance. So of course, the cost structures came up and we had ended up on our savings. So we went into fundraise. We did that raise also. So... We were still lending via P2P to the borrowers in education, but demand went so high because we used to do B2B partnerships, right? We didn't directly reach out to parents. We reached out to schools and colleges. They told their parents to pay fees via us. Suddenly in 2019, the demand went very large. And in terms of the supply, we were not able to match that rate of growth. So P2P had their restrictions. So P2P at that point in time, you know, they after being regulated, every individual cannot put more than 10 lakhs. And then the restrictions started came in, coming in terms of the amount. right? So for us, we had to choose between the two. Either we focus a lot on the demand and solve this education fee as a problem, or we focus a lot of a lot on supply. right? But at one point in time, we could not do both the things. So we decided we'll focus a lot on the demand and we'll solve for that education fee problem. Whereas with respect to supply, what we have is good. But what we can do is we can start integrating with NBFCs and banks and then use their books to lend to the customers. So we started doing integration piece. That's where our tech entity was born. And the tech entity then integrated with other lenders, NBFCs and banks, and they integrated with our own P2P also as one of the lender. So our lending became not only from P2P, but from other lending options. The supply automatically increased. So we didn't have to work on a day-to-day basis. And then we focused on getting into the demand space and understanding this space better.
when did you do the nbfc tie-ups in 2019 so 2018 we were only doing p2p and from 2019 between somewhere from feb to may where our demand suddenly increased a lot that's the time i think around after may we started going to nbfcs and we partnered with them and then we started matching the supply and when did you raise your first round it started back in feb and march and by around may to june that year right we were able to pick up okay okay so almost immediately after raising the first round you started the nbfcs and this this must have been your peak season right because generally march april is where you have to pay your school fees yes it was that because first year we majorly worked with k12 from second year that bias towards fee cycle went away because of various other reasons like colleges and new admissions and all of it but in year 1 we were majorly working with k12 so that april till july was kind of a peak so a couple of uh, hows how did you raise funds like you know any like any tips from there like you know in terms of was it that the business was doing so well that it wasn't a struggle or did you have to struggle and how did you crack your nbfc deals how did you crack the institution tie ups the school tie ups our model was definitely good our ltv repeat values were all good and but we hadn't done enough in terms of the seed stage right we had to go to angels first so we understood when we had to raise our first round first thing our season was in place so we need to raise it quickly so had we gone via a traditional raising route it would have taken us probably 9 months or so to end 6 to 9 months to close right so we went by the angel route we spoke to a lot of angel companies a lot of angel investors who we met in the stanford program as well and from there we could pick up uh, right but again it wasn't that i had a conversation once i kind of probably not even exaggerating i, I would say more than 120 130 pitches minimum that i did to get my first angel on board and i changed a lot of the deck right because they used to give a lot of feedback and a lot of the business model was also you know enhanced after receiving the investor feedback and how they look at the models as well so that happened got in the first check and as soon as you get the first check the next check quickly follows right so it's always that way so, because there's validation then that someone is putting in money there's validation if someone is putting in a chunk you get a lead and then the, it was done through an angel round for us and the other angels they are all in conversation but as soon as they saw the first term sheet and money coming in then we were always oversubscribed so first round also we had to give it a stop and then we went ahead from it yeah. okay amazing okay and how did you crack uh, the institution tie up the school tie up school tie up was a very interesting way that very different from nbfcs right for nbfcs we use our investors to talk to them right and try and get the first partner use the first partner to get the second partner go one to one because we didn't need a lot of nbfcs right even two would suffice and these were like new age nbfcs or like traditional new age they are smaller new age nbfcs but smaller book size right but they are willing to do this they are willing to explore and we were very clear of course we go to a larger one they want to see a lot of history and it's a classic chicken egg problem so you had to approach someone for whom even at one or five crores per month makes some difference right so we approached those nbfcs first got in a few and on the school side we had a very different approach of going of course we we didn't want to do a feet on street or method which would be capital intensive as well so how should we go about it so what we did was we created a network called channel partner networks so a lot of people now use the same coin the same word but essentially people who know the trustees of institution because we want to go top down 
it's a financial decision principal won't be able to take that decision it's the trustee who is able to bring that into picture so bottoms up knocking the doors of a school talking to admin principal that's a longer way capital intensive we needed people who can influence or who are directly connected to the school owner the trustee if there's disbursement happening in that school i do a ref share with the channel partner so we started a channel partner network who are prima facie some of the school owners themselves they were chartered accountants they were ex bankers there were some celebrities and there were many people who knew the owners closely and as soon as we pitched the product they were like yes this is a problem i know it very well i will give you this give me this ref share and we started establishing that in the first year itself we had around more than 70 75 of channel partners pan india bases and these were the partners who spoke to institutions for us they kind of did the first work and then we kind of came into in the closer conversations that's how we increased but how did you identify these i mean you can't run a facebook campaign to find such channel partners how did you identify and reach out so it was more an organic play right so first institution for us was masuri international back in masuri dehradun masuri once we had that institution we went into common forums in that city and we got hold of other owners then the city had small media channels then we spoke to them this is happening in the school and we used them to get to other players hey that was one area that we did then through investors we reached out through through a few cas and ex bankers because investors always had their own bankers and chartered accountants and they got us a few schools so what we did from this we then reached out to school owners and we told them you get us this and then we will have this structure with you we will kind of recover the subvention cost only if you refer to another institution so we started a referral program but very close nexus with school owners chartered accountants and ex bankers that's how we started and then the ca network started connecting us to more and more people who were not the school owners but they became a channel partner again right so this is how it started to spread i think the one big learning from this is how getting angel investors in early can really give you a leg up like in terms of how they unlocked so many opportunities for you absolutely you know i had always believed uh, with respect to investment is not just the money because i am not like a repeat founder when i wanted to start this right so obviously with the money if the network comes in it will solve for the chicken egg issues so the person has to play a role and in all my investor conversation i'd always been clear with them even with the institutions today i'd always spoken there is something and that is why i'm with you so it has to be that you also play a role apart from the monetary uh, monetary support there right and what's what's a good playbook for reaching out to angels did you use linkedin messages or did you ask for referrals and use your network or yeah so there is no hard and fast playbook when it comes to a fundraise perspective also everyone can do it their own way they have to have enough confidence in doing so because few conversations can change the entire landscape for you a first few conversations right the if the other person believes you in the first few conversation you will kind of explode on the network that can be built up on it right so your pitch matters but the way i built up was of course i had my iit connects so the iit alum network which i utilized and these guys were connected to a lot of funds a lot of angels some of them were the angels themselves the seniors they had enough money they were working abroad so i used them right that was one area then i reached out to other in like indian angel network and mumbai angels then angel bay so i basically reached out to them because they made us talk to a lot of other angels like devex and others 
So I, there were few which I knew were around and I started speaking to them. They started arranging the calls for us. Right? That's the network, I think, the IIT alum network and this one helped us a lot. Even before we went to any investment banker, actually, the first stage was only through these kind of an angel network and a few networking sessions that have been part of before. Okay. So yeah, let's continue the journey. So you got these NBFCs on board and now you had a, the problem of supply was solved once you got these NBFCs on board. Yeah. So once that happened, right, first 24 was more on the K-12 side and we were still discovering how to penetrate. So initially when we started the model, we had a B2B tie-up with the school, but the schools did not subvent it. Initially, there was an interest bearing on the parents, right? But the schools promoted us so that there's a loan facility. You need to define subvent for people who are not from the space. What is subvention? Yeah. So subvention means whenever you are about this zero interest product, right? So it's not that it's actually zero interest. Someone is paying for the interest, right? So either the end customer or the product provider. So in this case... If the interest is borne by the school, then it is zero interest for the parent, right? So when I say subvention is basically subventing that interest component. So school does that. Instead of giving a discount, you give zero EMI and that interest you're bearing is equivalent to the discount you would have given otherwise to increase your sales. Exactly. It's very popular for the consumers to understand, right? In the consumer durable space, like when you buy a laptop or a television, you buy it on an EMI. But the television or laptop provider has a partnership with, say, a Bajaj or others, where actually the interest, the subvention or the discount is given by them to the financial provider, right? It's very simple. The same thing here in subvention. Yeah, the whole BNPL industry is built on this, basically. Exactly. Very similar. The schools actually give discounts to us, right? And it wasn't, but even before we went into that model, right, the first thing that we started was we didn't ask for that. We just had partnerships. We asked the schools to please bring this awareness that we are there for the parents in case they need our help in terms of paying the fees. Right? It got popular. And when we went into schools to further promote this, we understood that schools are already providing discounts. Right? It's not that we asked for it. The schools, you will see most of the schools, most of the popular ones also you must be aware of. If you're paying your full year fees on day one, the schools were themselves willing to give a good chunk of discount to the parents right? because schools were facing this problem of collecting fees on time from the parents. So they promoted that you pay upfront, I'll give you a discount. So I have my growth and working capital issue solved. right? But in spite of them pitching, hardly three to seven percent of the parents were paying their fees upfront. The remaining were choosing, they still chose to pay it in quarterly installments. right? So this wasn't new. And when we observed this, we were like, why are we asking parents to pay the interest? The school is willing to give a discount. We go to the school and tell them, parents don't have liquidity, we bring in it. We bring that liquidity in, you give pass that discount to us and we'll make it zero interest for the parents. So we'll not charge them because why should we charge them if the school is willing to give? It is zero interest irrespective of period. Like normally in BNPLs, you have, for example, split into three EMIs, which is zero interest. But if you want to pay over a year, then you have to bear some cost on it. Was there something? Yeah, so we also, not very similar to that because BNPL, like you said, credit card BNPL is more like a three-month thing. But for us, it was per annum, right? So you pay your per annum fees, like 12 installments or nine installments, if you exclude the vacation. But 
that's the period you get at zero interest. Now, if you want to go beyond a 12-month tenure because you're already into the next year of education, and if you still want to go, it's not that we disallowed, but the idea was you clear your fees before you pay for the second year fees. And that's when we subvention model became popular. First 24 schools, we were not very popular on subvention side. But our first year, first three months, we understood this. And then we started approaching schools. And that one year from 24, suddenly we crossed a 400, 450 around in that year. And that's where it became. 2019 financial year, where you? 2019, yeah. So your peak season is like this March, April. And this is when in 2020, COVID hit, right? Did that have an impact? <laughs> yeah, it, actually, overall, I can say it had a positive impact, but definitely it had an impact in terms of how to plan the business and restructure things to adapt to this. Because even schools stopped asking for fees and they gave extensions and parents also were up in arms. Why should we pay fees when it's just one hour online class, stuff like that? So, I mean, the it, it must have like been a jolt. Yeah, I mean, see, that that's how, the, that's how our assumptions and our advisors also came on board on how should we go ahead. But it was very interesting how that year actually turned out to be for us. So but 2019, first half was about K-12 schools. Second half, we onboarded a lot of colleges also, uh, UG segment. Right? And when we went into 2020, both of them are functioning good. And this when the COVID hit the first... One quick question. By this end of financial year 2019, was it all tech-based onboarding, etc.? Parent onboarding was all tech-based, yes. But school onboarding wasn't completely tech-based. So it was actually physical documents that we used to sign. But on the parent side, yes, it was tech-based. So lending to parents was tech They could download an app, send their Aadhaar, PAN, whatever information you wanted all through the app they could do. And then they would get an approval to pay by installment. Online. Everything online, yes. And the school would circulate a link to parents that if you want to. Absolutely. So once we sign an agreement with the school, which was more on a physical nature, after that, the school in their fee circular, they'll announce that you can pay. This is a new mode of payment. You can use them. They will circulate an email, put us on their ERP so that whenever a parent is coming to pay fees, they'll understand, put some standees brochures in the campuses, right? So that's an activity that we do together. For a parent, the advantage is that instead of paying quarterly, they can pay monthly. That was only one of the advantages. Better cash flows. So when we started itself, we gave them a second advantage as well. First, of course, was like zero interest. Why wouldn't you take? Because you can make more money elsewhere also. But we also... But that anyway, the zero interest is there as a quarterly installment for them, right? Quarterly. So typically, the way it happens, if you're paying one lakh, say 25,000 every quarter, instead of paying 25,000 in April, you can pay 8,000, right? So in April, then 8,000 in May, 8,000 in June. So... So there's a net present value benefit that parents, if they are more financial savvy, they can make on it, right? But apart from that, we started offering free insurance. So if you're paying your fees via, at that point of time, it was finance peer. If you're paying your fees via finance peer, you are insuring your kids. So if tomorrow something happens to a parent in the form of accident, in the form of hospitalization, some permanent disability, then we take care of your kid, not only for that year, for the remaining tenure in the same institute. Right? And this is a classic case that happened with us also, where when brother who was supporting his younger one had expired and the younger kid is still completed his education where our insurance helped him. Right, So that's something that we added on for the parents along with the normal zero costing.
and that insurance covered the entire like x number of years which is left in the schooling it was 5 years but it kind of suffice it was 60 months but on an average it kind of sufficed for them yeah so that was a benefit so the journey from there was after school college of course we came into 2020 2020 2019 was quite good for us good amount of disbursements happening we onboarded a lot of colleges which we were supposed to serve in 2020 so we are very excited about it and then covid happened of course But the first thing even before we go into business of course covid what it did to us was everyone went into replanning we had term sheet committed of nearly 1.5 mil at that point in time which was big amount for us that time and that term sheet first one could not go through because covid hit and their liquidity came into a problem the second term sheet again we signed one investor taking the full round and because of covid the same issue he's postponed it from the month of feb till the month of may and we still did not receive the money in may but he was still committed to it but we had to move on so we had to get we had to terminate the term sheet how much runway did you have at that time 3 months 3 months after may we had 3 more months a very delicate situation and uh, that point in time of course the advice given to us by a lot of investors and advisors back in then was to you know manage cash flows you know go through this reduction exercise uh, save money and extend your runway but uh, you know it was also a critical time for us a second year and it was a good scale a previous year schools needed us more today than the last year you know and the opportunity was big if you look at the opportunity during covid schools are not able to collect fees right and parents have it wasn't just the liquidity problem parents had a liquidity issue because they knew that if they're not going to office some anything could happen with their jobs secondly right a lot of people received pay cuts and got laid off and- exactly there's a lot of pay cuts so the need for money for parents was more for schools was more and parents always told the school that i will pay in as many installments because i don't know if you are going to stay or no right so in, the need for installment was very large so the way we looked the founders looked at this like a big opportunity because our product is now more needed than before but of course we had some rift with our investor advisors back then that you know instead of letting go we should actually take a stand and just go ahead trust our business model and just go aggressive so instead of reducing the cost and all of it we actually ended up increasing we took a debt to extend it by another couple of months and initially before the debt we reduced our runway from 3 months to 1 month right and it, it was a big big thing that we did what did you spend on acquisition so the school acquisition right so we rather expanded the team we didn't go through any single cut right we went with a normal increments cycle proper increments no cuts more people hired and you know it would look absurd but it did wonders from no one had achieved a thousand institution partnership before that right that 400 plus we went to 2000 plus institutions in that single year that's the number of partnerships that suddenly 10 million dollars of disbursements happened revenue started coming in this became super attractive to every investor everyone wanted to reinvest in this model that year changed it right and if today if you look at it everyone goes in the school financing space but that was the year which defined it everyone went on back foot but we really took it very aggressively and today all other players who initially didn't want to enter the space you will see many players entering this space right so that that is the year which actually created 2020 it was a very big year for us and the big best point for us was you know you, you must have met a lot of school owners they typically like to sit face to face and sign an agreement right 
So signing up school. <laughs> so signing up with schools wasn't that easy in 2019, but 2020 suddenly they started accepting digital practice. So people are signing agreements online. They were using all digital signature format to complete the formalities. They were accepting standard terms. They are coming on calls and finishing it up. So things became fast. We could talk to schools fast. We could talk to parents through webinars. Actually, it turned out to be good because I would be- not give benefit to COVID. But digital adoption was very large in 2020-21. So parents and schools they used to come. So obviously, our cost of acquisition reduced, right? And we could scale at a different pace from homes itself. So that helped. 2020 and 2021 for us became one of the like profitable most of the. most revenue and most partnership for us was those two years it gave us a big boom so bold step we took back in the month from may but it turned out to be wonders for us later and you raised i think 2.3 million series a around in 2020 right yes roughly around 3 mil so we it was a bit spread it out and yeah so one of we took fund from one of our good nbfcs back in rajasthan who understood so along with their funds they gave us lending lines so in covid times we did not stop lending so that nbfc supported us our previous nbfc supported us so we could, we were not kind of you know getting rid of lending at that point in time i mean i can see there are about some maybe 40 50 investors listed for that round so again you must have been doing a lot of meetings and yes many meetings <laughs> many meetings. I, i didn't even have to look at my pitch deck i just had to start and end <laughs> and even in my sleep i could say i could give the same pitch phone <laughs> but yeah i did a lot of virtual meetings and a lot of funds but at that point of time those funds did not accumulate the money into their account and transfer it to us you would see a lot of people on the cap table because those funds at that point they centralized it but every individual had to deposit the money directly into our account and that is why they had to come on the cap table but essentially that time the round was led by this it was led by ms fincap which was the nbfc who started purbesh nbfc and then by rm ventures like a firm of rt industries and gala bansali group these two ones actually supported in a big way and then the other funds jito devex angel bay these were other groups who came in and they got in their angels as well and then hem and others as well so uh, and uh, 21 again you raised about a 6 and 1/2 7 million round approximately this time with more institutional funds yes this time with more institutions so this time around uh, of course we wanted to raise a larger check as well because we were seeing that growth happening and in terms of acquiring we had to say either we stop at this number and then try and go deeper with the same economy or we do that economy of scale and put more money and get more institutions so we decided that we'll put more and get more institutions so it had to go with time so 21 while we were still tackling the growth because to reaching in like less than 3 years to 100 million of disbursement it actually shook the market and we had a lot of new partnerships that came into picture so we had to adapt to it we had to get a lot of data work done digitally so while we were doing it we said okay we'll raise a small and we'll do it one by one of course we didn't want to dial it together a lot of stake also so we started going to institutions that year 2021 is when we started approaching institutions because i felt it was better but why did you need funds your school your sales process of onboarding your sales is essentially just the sales to the school right you're not doing b2c or retail sales 
to the parents and acquisition costs were more to acquire the parents because in an institution if there are say 100 parents even if you're partnered with the institution just the fee circular and email does not convert parents into taking a product right the school has to tell them because this communication typically a school communicating with the parent is more on academic front when it comes to fees people just know this is the fee payment date and they just come and pay right so to be to make them aware is where our cost structure started coming in so we had to do events in the campuses to let people know that firstly zero interest emi is not any kind of a scam right it's an actual lending product that we have built so you don't have to be scared so people had to get accustomed to it and we had to go through different kind of behaviors from the parents also so a classic example is if i had schools in north in delhi side i had schools in the south in chennai area also in the north when we did this exercise with parents a lot of parents they had the stigma of taking a loan so they went back in their homes and they used to call us and take the loan but in front of each other when their events happening they would say i don't need it right they felt ashamed to take a loan but if you go in the south it was a huge queue right so people were not ashamed to take so it's a very different behavior so for us acquisition happened across the country not in the east but it was in southwest and north and behavior pattern was different so we did a lot of spending to understand the parent behavior there and but you're not lending on your own books right you don't have an nvfc license so you did not need capital from that perspective like uh, otherwise yeah okay yes no we did not our capital requirement was majorly on the tech development followed by the parent acquisition right because see when we started doing the lending to p itself has a lot of development when you have to manage multiple stakeholders in a single loan you kind of manage more than 10 15 people right so that itself had a lot of development apart from that our tech stack had to be digitally integrated with the lenders because if you worked manually then our operational levels were very large and this integration with lenders we started working with large lenders and large large nbfcs and banks as well at that point in time so integration required a lot of tech resources to get that product integrated and get into the system build our own los lms this loan operating system loan management system get into the reconciliation processes so the tech build up took a lot of effort and majorly actually if you look at it we were very clear even when we started this that you know any business model is not just about acquisition it has to have a retention and engagement perspective to it so we always went with this are approach right our approach where retention engagement products were being built now this was r&d for us which today you look at it as payment platform as cards platform as erp this is not built overnight like like 2 months 3 months we knew we had to build this there is people are not going to take a loan multiple times in a year so for them to stay put with you and then come back in the following year and for the school to stay put with you and not you know you don't have a drop off you need to have a retention engagement product so we are working on that elements that's where we needed most of the funds for okay okay got it i guess to scale this from the demand side you can't be continuously taking workshops and doing offline events so instead if you integrate where the school's payment is handled by you entirely then it's a lot easier to direct the flow towards zero emi exactly that's what we did so we built our own fee module that's the first fee module that we built then we acquired an erp to on top of the fee module and we started deploying it in institution now that implementation itself also is a tedious exercise because schools are, do not have teams which are very tech savvy 
in nature. So, you know, they have some kind of a technical debt on their side as well. So that integration, so we got in a fee module first so that, you know, this happens digitally. So that was the idea. Right. And fee module, most schools would be quick to adopt because it's how they survive. Whereas ERP would take more time. And this ERP is like a free product for them. It's part of your retention. Yes, exactly. That is a it was a cost structure for us, to be honest. It's retention engagement aspect. Revenue was still the lending piece. So so much of deployment, so much of integration, but that is as a free product offered to the institution. We have developed retention engagement on it, but at that year, it was a cost. Today, we are converting more, so it's becoming more revenue from there, but it was a cost back then. And the fee module is what? It's essentially like a way to send reminders to parents and have a payment gateway where parents can come and pay from any method that they want to and accounting like who's paid who's not paid stuff like that like that's what a fee module does exactly like you pointed out the fee calendar of institution is integrated so we know which student has to pay when so there are automated reminders and once the fee is collected the institution is given a dashboard so the data recon can happen on the institution's front who has paid who has not paid who has partially paid right and for the partial payment when to trigger the link so that is taken care by the software and while doing the payment, there will be every option available. It's not just you can pay via, say, debit card, credit card kind of a thing, but you will have facility of taking a loan as well, right? So then fee data is already integrated into the loan platform, so you don't have to resubmit it. So the loan taking process becomes simpler for the same parent. Do you get a, like, you know, payment gateways have a processing fees, like, it's typically i think less than one percent or something but do you earn that like we do very less to be honest because again like i said right we had planned of this as a retention engagement so then at that point in time we did not build this as a revenue center right but we do have some revenue share from there on the payment gateway side typically the pgs already work with schools colleges but their cost of funds to them their rates are a bit larger unless they're working with very large group but if you work with a school or a college which only has five crores of collections or 10 crores you know they charge them more on a debit and credit transaction or a upi transaction but when we integrated with a pg and then brought our entire payment solution the same pg looks at us as 11000 institution not like one institution so they give us Power of collective bargaining. Yes. So we get at a very low rate and we pass it to the institution. So wherever we have integrated, we haven't actually matched or increased, we've actually decreased their cost. So if they were paying 1.1% or 1.2% of a credit card, they will now pay 0.8, 0.9%. Right? So they've actually reduced it. And for us, either we make no revenue or we make like a 0.1% on the top. Okay. And which company did you acquire for ERP uh, or did you just acquire the software? Like We acquired a company. It was uh, back then called QPIC, QPIC. It was a Kerala-based entity. It has its ERP in MET, a few colleges in Bombay as well, and then some in Bangalore like JN. So it has their ERP there. It was working in less than 50 institutions when we looked at it. Right? And we had a good amount of institutions. So we just took over the full firm with all the products they developed, merged our fee product into it along with lending. And then we started offering that to institutions without a cost. The integrations take time. So hence, we were only able to do around 360 in the last year. What is the integration needed? You mean like the migration of data? 
Yeah, you kind of pointed out. In integration involves a lot of data heavy work, right? Data mapping has to happen because they are already working with a legacy system or they don't have a system, right? Either ways you'll have to do a mirror. So data mapping, data inflow, before they put into the system, the data recon. So this effort has to be done on both sides, right? And getting that into a framework, then giving that solution to them. Once we give it to them, then they have to do a lot of configurations. Configuration is the easy part, but the entire data flow into the system is something that is a back and forth process. Right, right. Got it. Okay. And what all does this ERP manage? What are the modules in it? We essentially manage end-to-end segments like it has all the inventory management tools with them. It has all the transport management tools with them, hostel management, academic library management tool, examination management tool, assignment correction, online classes as a tool. It, all of this was available. Lead management was the plugin for us and then other modules were also built in. Okay, okay, good. And this was for colleges or both colleges and schools? Originally, when we acquired the entity, it was into college space. So majorly, you will see all placement module, alumni modules. K-12 is as a subset. Right? So typically, they had built for college, which actually had more pieces to it in terms of accreditation as well. But if you go down to K-12 segment, we just had to reduce the components there. Okay, got it. Okay, okay, cool. So yeah, so 2021, you raised the next round and you also acquired this ERP company. And so you were investing in retention and engagement in 2021. Yes, we are majorly investing in the RE component of it. Second thing, this is a creator market. So there's a lot of stigma. So if you compare a creator market versus getting into a market which is already created. For example, today e-commerce is created like a Flipkart and Amazon. So now if you build something into that space, a user is accustomed to buying something online, right? But here a user is not accustomed to paying their core fees via loads. They're accustomed to paying your study abroad fees via loads. So we know, you know, this is a creator market. People are not accustomed to it. It's like a habit change that we are calling out for. So it will take some time in terms of product built up to understand the persona And then it will also take some time in terms of deployment because it's a slight habit change, right? So that point we were on the build phase and the following round that we did, we had a very clear understanding that this is what we are building and what kind of change it will require. And we had proof cases where we had shown those pilots where it worked, but to scale it up, you know, you can't take these products on a larger groups. And once we started working on that, then we started expanding on the school partnerships, right? So we went very aggressively, not only focusing on Mumbai, Pune or Dehradun. Dehradun was the first market, right? We started very exp- extensively in the Hyderabad, Telangana segment, AP segment. Then we went to the Rajasthan segment. Then we went into a lot into the north. Eastern, we slowly started. Eastern segment, we initially avoided because it was a credit negative zones. But this time we had more, I would say, more grip on the supply side as well, on the policy side, on how the parent behavior happens. We always had a default rate of less than 1.5-0.7% kind of a default rate. So we know this could be managed well. So we focused a lot on institution partnerships. First, stage one, then go into lending, stage two, and then you get all your RE products into the same institution, right? So our cap was initially go and increase the top of the funnel. So 21 was top of the funnel year. 22 for us was not top of the funnel year. 22 was different. We had already scaled our funnel. 
So we already crossed a lot of institutions. Then for us, it was go deeper into each funnel. How many institutions did you have in 22? We nearly reached about roughly 7,500 institutions. Today, although we have 11,000, we could have reached probably more than 15,000 as well. But very consciously, we took a decision that there are more institutions already with us. Now it's time to go deeper into the funnel. And we had Ray back in 22. We had the money as well when we raised. So we know now we can put money on deploying these products that we have developed. At 22, you raised from QED and like like much bigger funds. And this was a pretty big round of 31 million. Yes, yes. That was from QED, Avishkar, Arden, DMI, then New Eva Fund, Let's Venture. So we got a lot of VC round fund at this point in time. The model, of course, was going well. But all of us were now betting more on going deeper into the funnel. The validation that was hap- that happened is that this kind of a firm has touch base with more than 10,000 institutions. That itself for them me- meant big because we have a largest distribution uh, network, right? And we are very close to the trustees of more than 10,000 of these groups. But now it's time that we can explore a lot into the education market. So the base is established. So now this fund is actually going into deployment. Like even if you do the card deployment, for example, no, that itself has a card printing cost, a KYC cost. So there is a upfront capital you have to give. Then the card goes into a student's hand and then you get your revenue back from the school. You know? So there is a capital requirement there. So 22 was where we put a lot of money on the card deployment. The card development first in 22, 23, we're putting that money in the deployment segment. So this is a prepaid card or what is this card? Just help me understand the card product here. Yeah, so the card product that we start, the idea was, see, it's a very straightforward if I had to explain it, but difficult in terms of development side, right? Every institution, they have an ID card, right, which is compulsory for the, whether it's a K-12 or a college for the kid, right? We convert that ID card. So on the back side, it's a card and front side, basically a branded card placement. It's a, to start with, it's a prepaid card, right? It's a first numberless ID come prepaid card. So there's no number on the card, right? The number, etc. sits on your app. So this numberless ID come prepaid card helps you in multiple aspects. One is, of course, tap and pay works everywhere. So you can actually use it like a debit card everywhere. That's one aspect to it. You are rewarded on every transaction. You make 10% back because we have some merchant partnerships that we have established. right? So it's a reward card for the student. They use it as an ID, as an access card as well. The campus becomes cashless campus. The owner starts understanding that my school not only collects five crores, but I am a school whose gross fee value, like Amazon puts it, right, is like 15 crores, 20 crores, right? So because of that, the bank looks at the school differently, right? So, and if you start paying your fees via the card, then you get more rewards. If you pay on time via the card, so on-time fee payment improves. So these are certain benefits that you get. You can use the same card on travel in metros as well. Right? So it's a single smart ID card, which is established for the student. The big portion that we did on the card was we got in financial literacy into it. Right? So NEP, which is that national education policy, it clearly stated that you would have to now build financial literacy into your courses. right? And colleges are already working on it. Now, if they develop these courses, if they develop an infrastructure like card infrastructure to teach them, it is going to take them two, three years with crores of rupees as a spend. Today, without having this upfront spend and time, they get it as a plug and play. 
So in financial literacy, we have developed our own courses. You will get to go through, you understand what money transaction, what a loan transaction is, what investments is all about. So you will get all those courses also available along with your card. So that's something that we developed in the last year. Okay. Uh, so students download, like say, an Amity app or they download a finance sphere or a Leo one app for this literacy? Leo. So the way we have, it's a institution branded app for the students. So they download a Leo one app. And if, after downloading a Leo one app, they select their institution, right? Typically, they don't even have to do that because it's a B2B partnership. So if there is a college which already uses our cards, the data is already plugged into the institution dashboard. And when the link goes to the student, right, the student downloads the app from the link, then the institution is already identified. So essentially, when they open it, they open the Leo one app, they will see institution branding on the app. Okay. 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 Got it. Got it. Okay. And this was prepaid card. So that amount in the card, is that a loan from you or is it like parents transferring money? Okay. Parents load it, right? So basically it's good because the first thing parents can track, it's not tracking every transaction, but essentially if the kid runs out of the route of money in terms of cash, you can top it up from anywhere. Second is if you don't want the card to be used at a bar or somewhere, you can put those MCC restrictions and all of it, right? So if you want it to be used within the campus, so all of that could be enabled. So that is why it's a secure card for the student, right? So parents don't prefer always giving their own credit cards and open debit cards with all their balances, right? So they can give that to them, right? And then the students can start. And parents can also download the app to see transaction history and things like that. They can. Transaction history is available. Spend analyzer is available. So kid gets to learn, learn all of this, right? So it's a basically my time. I didn't have all of this. So later in my college time, I actually realized how to do a banking transaction. Right? But nowadays kids can do it with these kind of systems coming in. Kids can do it in the schooling days as well. And this would need to be with a bank, right? You would need a bank partnership to issue a card. So which bank are you doing? Yes. We currently work with NSDL. So NSDL payments back. So that's some that's who we work with at the moment. We have a few other banking partners also, but we have already gone live with NSDL today. So it's NSDL and Mastercard, NSDL and Visa as an. And there is a merchant discount rate. So you earn something in that, like a few basis points would come to you, like some sharing. Yeah. Of, yes. Of course. There's an interchange income. So there's some sharing that we have with the banks there. Yeah. And how many cards have been issued so far? See, in terms of orders, we have two and a half lakh cards. 15,000 cards are already in circulation, which the students are using on a daily basis. Probably by September, you would see around two lakh cards in circulation. Because I guess July, August is when the colleges start. So that's when you would ship. Yeah, exactly. So July to September is when I'm looking at an actual circulation because orders are there. But the card distribution as an idea would happen back because we have done this majorly in the college space to start with on the card side. Yeah, obviously. I mean, before that, they don't really need a debit card. And and so a college ID card is now replaced with this. So every enrollment a college has, you get an order for it and you send them. And do you charge for this like a one-time fees? See, that pricing model is still under testing. But initially, we did not charge. The demand was too large to handle. Then we started charging them. It's roughly priced at around 299 rupees. The card is priced as priced at that's roughly around 300. There is still enough demand to take the cards at that price, right? 
now the idea is we are trying to go through the rollout process and understand our own implementation timelines and how much we can handle as a team in terms of deploying it then we look at it in terms of demand supply match right but at the moment yes we charge it's roughly at around 300 rupees per student okay amazing so we are now at the present let's talk a little on what's on the future what do you expect will be your dispersal this financial year see this i would say right now we are focusing as going deeper into the funnel so it may not go from 100 to 500 mil kind of a dispersal i would say roughly it will still stay around a 200 to 50 mil kind of a dispersal right with respect to the payments we would half a billion dollars of payments happening through our fee module and in terms of erp of course the consumption right now three lakh students are kind of using it roughly it would be seven to eight lakhs right a major focus on the payments and cards that that will enrich right and of course there would be inherent lending happening through the mechanisms of payments and cards which i'm not accounting at the phase because i like i said it's a learning phase for us uh, let us go through the implementation and understand more about this you know, before trying to put in large numbers on this how would lending happen through cards the, the card is being spent by the student right like how would you do like uh, lead gen no so basically the idea is just like a fee module acts kind of a lead gen for you ERP acts like a lead gen for you and the cards would also act like a lead gen for you, right? How much of the lead gen, how much is the conversion value, etc. That's early for us to comment on it, but definitely it acts like a lead gen. Like says a student wants to buy a mobile phone using that card, so he would get a BNPL option there. Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah, he'll apply for, yeah, he'll apply for a loan. He can't use the card as a credit card, but he can apply for a loan. And pay through the card for the installments. Okay. 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 Amazing. So so now you're entering into Bajaj Finance territory also now. Amazing. <laughs> Aren't they doing pretty well in the consumer development? So we, sh- we should all learn from the biggies always, right? So yeah, they're doing pretty well in the consumer market. And your margin is still around 3%. You told me in the early days, the margin was around 3% on the amount disbursed. Uh, P2P side goes from like 2% to 6% kind of a spread, right? Margin, yes, it started with 3 on a non-P2P segment, but it goes up. So it's above a 4 today. It goes up because your cost of finance comes down every year, because your portfolio performs good. And that's how the economies are working, right? Okay. And what is your NPA rate? At the moment, it was around 0.5-0.7%, but if you include the full book till today, it's around 1%, 1 1.1%. No written off there, but by the end of the year, a lot of loans will get cleared. It will come down to 0.5-0.7%, but it hovers around 0.7 to 1% on an average. And how does this compare with the general retail lending or BNPS? What's the way to look at this number? No, this is an excellent number, you know, because I've the number that I've given you is including the COVID cycle, right? The COVID cycle, people have seen double digit default happening, like 15%, 18%, 12% kind of thing. We never went there. We never went to that kind of a spread because we stuck to a single model in education space, right? So compared to that, it's pretty good. Even a personal loan kind of performs at a higher default rate than we are operating at the moment, right? So that's it's actually performing good and inherently it had to since you are going into a formal market and you know that the course tenure is there and the kid has to take your loan again in the following year so they will clear it at the end of the year they may delay their payments but they do clear it by the end of the year 
And what is the approval rate? Like, do you approve everyone who wants to pay through EMI or is there a drop off there? Like some people don't clear the credit underwriting process. Yeah, there are a few people who don't clear the credit underwriting process, right? We do have NTC approvals. We do have a lenient credit policy because there's alternate data available from the institutions as well. So our approval rate typical to a bank or a generic unsecured personal loan. So typically unsecured personal loan has an approval rate for around 32 to 38%. We have an approval rate, a blended approval rate of roughly around 64% to 65%. If you only look at schools, colleges, an approval rate is way beyond 75% as well, right? But if I mix some of the alternate skilling segment that we finance, then the approval rates are lower on the scaling segment. So hence a blended of around 65%. And you said you have a lot of alternate data, including data from the institution. What is that and how does that help? Like you're saying the marks of a student, like the academic performance or what? Like Just fee-related data. For example, if a fee module is in place, ERP is in place, then in the previous year, when did the customer pay? What time? How much amount? You know, that kind of tells you is the customer's appetite to pay the fees. If there's a history of timely payment, then you know that the credit risk is low. Okay, 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 okay. Got it. Amazing. So, okay, my final question to you, you know, what's your advice to founders who are starting up? Uh, Biggest advice I've always said, perseverance, right? Stay in it. Stay in the game. There will be pivots, right? You as a founder has to believe in what you're doing and what impact you're creating. So if you are passionate about what you do, that model will succeed. But you have to be passionate and you have to have that perseverance to stay in it. Right? That's very important for every founder. Right? If I had to be a single advice, that would be on priority one for me. Because I've seen this in the past. A lot of people say out of 100 startups, 99 fail and 98 fail. But a lot of them don't know that out of the 99, many people fail in the first year itself. Because they just try sell to chordo. They don't want to take it ahead, right? And people typically, startups who have been in the space for like three, four, five years, you will see most of them will make it big, right? Because they've stayed put, they've learned a lot from the market. Maybe in the harder way, but they have. So being in the game is a very important aspect of being a founder. So that perseverance has to be there. What about org building? You know, you what's your headcount today? Right now, we have less than 200 people, just around the 150 kind of a mark, right? But building is very difficult, to be honest. And there is no hard and fast rule about it. It always goes by need of the hour. What I would suggest to founders, and I've also learned it the harder way as well, you know, try and have someone, whoever you're hiring, do not haphazardly hire. You probably can go a bit slow, right? And if you really want to go fast, you can do it on contract staff as well. But if you're hiring someone, take someone who's an asset to the company. That's point one. Even if you go down to even a zero ref, that person should be an asset to the company. Second one, always try and hire someone who is better than you. Right? Don't try to hire someone who will just listen to your orders. Right. So take people who can be better than you. That's, these two are very important. So you know, just get your right person at the right place, right? And try to keep as lean a chart as possible. What do you mean by this? Like in terms of hierarchy, like telling people you are below him? Is that what you mean by this? Or? Uh, not like exactly below him, but typically what happens for early stage companies as well, right? When you're building your company, you don't have enough funds to hire experienced folk. And as you grow, you have higher experienced folks as well. 
but the earlier staff doesn't find it easy to report to an ex- experienced folk, right? So as you're building your company with more funds that you have, you know, you may have junior people, but junior you don't want to hurt the junior people, or you may have a senior people reporting to a junior people, a junior person, right? That becomes a very different graph because see, it's not a, a lot of money I have on day one and I build a company. Initially, you'll have a lot of people who are passionate and support you. And sometimes seniors join and they report to junior staff who has worked with you for a longer time, right? Those dynamics are not very easy. So when you're developing an org chart, an org chart always evolves every year for a startup. You don't have to really look for like making everyone in the org chart happy per se, because obviously there would be some risk, but it's better you take it than delay it because internal noises increase a lot if you don't you know, have the right org chart in place. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to this show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in this show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at the podium.in. That's ad at t-h-e-p-o-d-i-u-m dot in. 